As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Anfield hosts a Champions League Classic, whilst Manchester City show they don't need a big-name striker. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer perplexes Man United fans. Rawamela Lukaku gets more comfortable at Stamford Bridge. We'll also ask, is there really no hope for Newcastle United fans? This is The Game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Thank you for joining us once again. With me today, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson. Gregor joins us from pretty average hotel room in Wren. How's the uh, how's the conference league adventure going so far? It's an adventure, all right. It's an adventure getting here in the first place. Actually, it's not the most straightforward journey. I had to go to Amsterdam, which seems very bad environmentally from a, from a starting point, and then, and then over here, and then it all kind of seemed not the most worthwhile uh, endeavour as well when you've got Nuno's uh, press conference <laughs> and kind of three word answers to all the questions so and then I had to find an Irish bar to try and watch the Champions League last night so it's been an adventure adventure's the right word to you more to come tonight as well of course the big Did, one yeah. Ren, Ren against Spurs so uh, back page news tomorrow I'm sure after a 5 nil defeat <laughs> for Tottenham Hotspur let's get straight into the, the start of the Champions League it was a pretty big week Loads of great games. I think probably the best game involving a British side came at Anfield last night. Liverpool beating AC Milan, another European giant, by three goals to two. It was end-to-end. It was topsy-turvy, but I think the, the right result in the end. But let's speak to a man who was inside Anfield as European football returned, our Northern football correspondent, Paul Joyce. Classic European night at Anfield. That's how it's being reported on. Is that how you saw it? Yes, I think so. I think it was one of those sort of roller coaster games that you often get at Anfield. The crowd whipped up into a frenzy but by the sort of team and Liverpool making it hard work for themselves, really. Um, but a very important result. Klopp's already said how difficult this group is and to come back and get the win as they did and, and for Atletico and Porto to draw nil-nil, it, it sets Liverpool up, really. I was reading your report that in the first 15 minutes, Liverpool had had 13 attempts, six on target. Liverpool in these Champions League nights, the way they fly out of the blocks, it's pretty unique and it seemed kind of having the fans back, having the crowd behind them really spurned them on. It was back to one of those those special nights in the Champions League. Yes, definitely. I think they sort of obviously having the crowd back in for a European game for the first time it did inspire them. I think the interesting part of the sort of the way that they flew out of the blocks was there's a UEFA report into the Champions League 2021 season, which shows that because of all the um, injury problems Liverpool have in defence, we all thought at the time that it impacted on the team structure and how they played and, and that they were less sort of 
they were may- maybe more a reserve team. And the, the UEFA report shows this in, in that the sort of, at times the pressing was down by 30%. So conversely, the number of passes the opposition had before Liverpool won the ball back was up 30%, which is, I thought it was really interesting point that it was such a big drop off in, in what Liverpool normally tend to do last season, largely down to the defensive issues that they had. So now you've got you know, all the defenders back. I think that gave Liverpool the confidence to sort of go at Milan from the off. And also because it was the first game in the group and there was fans in, you know, there was those factors as well. But but certainly I think we'll probably see more of what Klopp would regard as classic Liverpool this season in Europe because he has got that defensive stability. He was able to rest Van Dijk last night, bring in Joe Gomez. The only downside of that was that they didn't get more than one goal. Obviously, Salah missed the penalty and uh, that's a little bit of a recurring issue in Liverpool's play as well, that they dominate teams and, and swarm all over them, but don't always translate that into the number of goals that they should. Paul, let me just come at you in terms of that team selection. Van Dijk and Mane on the bench in the first Champions League game which I think most people are like, look, let's get off to a great start, get three points in the bank. AC Milan on a, on a bad side. It's a tough group. Porto and Atletico Madrid, as you mentioned. I was just surprised to see that. And a start for Divock Origi, a start for Joe Gomez, as you mentioned. How do you think the players that came in did in, the, you know, replacing Mane and replacing Van Dijk, Joe Gomez and Divock Origi? Marks. When the team sheet came through, everybody thought of it as a sort of the team he might have gone to at the San Siro, which is the last game in the group when you're hoping that it's a bit of a dead rubber. I wasn't surprised Joe Gomez played. I was I was expecting Matip to maybe be the one who was rested. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was rested at the weekend against Crystal Palace because it's two years since he last played three games in a week for Liverpool. I think Origi was the more surprising one because he wasn't even in the squad for the game at Leeds at the weekend. I think it was open secret that Liverpool would have sold him in the summer. But as with a lot of clubs, one of the impacts of sort of COVID is being able to move on these players who are maybe a little bit surplus to requirements at Liverpool, but are on maybe high wages and, and Liverpool want a high transfer fee. And other clubs are maybe less likely to take a gamble on those players now in given the financial impact of COVID. I think it shows Klopp's very pragmatic. Okay, he's still here, we'll we'll use him. And I I actually thought he did well. Obviously set up the goal for Salah with a good pass for the equaliser. Had a couple of chances himself. He certainly reminded everybody that he can still offer something. I think the other thing you need to say about the team selection is with with the five substitutes that you have in the Champions League, if something doesn't work out by half-time, you know, it does give the managers the luxury of making those extra two changes. So it, it lessens the risk, in my view, of rotating at the start. You touched on it there about rotation. And obviously you've written this week about Matip and how he started the season well. Do you think there's an element with Klopp where obviously the Van Dyke injury last season was massive and we had that analysis from Sky and Jamie Carragher towards the end of the season about how they played the same team. A lot of players have played a lot of minutes over and over again. Do you think some of this rotation is in maybe thinking, I need to be a bit more clever with this squad. I need to give people minutes so that we might see big players rested in games where we might not expect it and other players given a chance. Because as you say, we were all shocked by Origi, but then I was watching it and thinking, what what a brilliant assist that is for Salah's goal. Do you think we might see a bit more of that this season? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I I think it'll be uh, sort of governed by two factors. One, the length of time that Gomez, Matip and Van Dijk were out means that 
I think you have to be, you know, manage their minutes a bit carefully. But I think Klopp said last season when he um, he sent Minamino out on loan to Southampton that he'd not been able to give him the chances that, that he should have done. Partly, again, through circumstance because you were changing the defence every week and so you didn't really want to make too many changes elsewhere in the team. The way he rotates the squad is something he can do better. I think he's on record as saying that he's going to have to try and use the squad more. So I think you're right. I think we will see games this season where a Minamino comes in from sort of nowhere. There's a lot of debate about whether Liverpool have the strength and depth of other teams, probably because other teams have spent more money and have £50 million signings on the bench, and that's what we equate to strength and depth. But if he's getting a, a sort of performance out of Origi like he did last night and you've got other players now sort of incentivised to give their role, then you know I think opportunities will come for them. Gentlemen, we have to talk about the winning goal in that game. In fact, you should probably reflect on Milan's goals in that crazy few minutes Jurgen Klopp spoke about as well. But Jordan Henderson, Tom Clark, shinner in my opinion, <laughs> but um, still a decent goal. <laughs> that's, that's tough to take. The man gets a winner, comeback winner at Anfield, and you're, you're writing him off. Not known for his goals, is he, old Jordan? But it came came as a bit of a surprise. The goal of the night for me was, as I mentioned already talking to Paul Joyce, was that Origi assist for Salah. That was absolutely beautiful, playing that ball over the top. I enjoyed the way, um, for that goal, the impact that VAR's had. Salah didn't celebrate properly. He did a kind of like, mm, not sure, not sure, lads. I think I might be offside. And you're like, come on, man. You've just scored an equaliser in the Champions League. Go for it. But uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think Jordan Henderson would mind whether it went in off his backside. Do you? No, I don't. It was a great goal. Had people talking about, you know, shades of Gerard Olympiacos, you know. <laughs> Rising half easy. Let's be honest, it was only Olympiacos. Yeah, at least this was against AC Milan. You know, just saying. True. true. Lots of people talking about the fact that Jordan Henderson's importance to Liverpool is getting up there in terms of that Steven Gerrard importance to the club. Maybe not out on the pitch in terms of his play, but just his importance to the club in terms of leadership, you know, his ability to help the team in, in its time of need. And it has, by the way, been a remarkable transformation since he arrived at the club as well, which I know he's got credit for in the past. But I think, you know, given that he's had a new contract, we should sort of state the importance of him in that regard as well. Personally, I think it's a wee bit reductive as well to say not... People always say that, not in his play. I think his play's developed immeasurably over over his time at Anfield. Mm. The way. He's not, he's not know, DVG though, is he? No, he's That's not. All I'm, he's saying. Not. He's I'm not, not saying but, he's a bad player. I'm just talking send, about he sends you know, comparisons raking. with Steven Gerrard. Yeah, he sends those raking kind of 50, 60 yard balls over the top and, you know, for a dart run of Salah or, or Trent on another side, you know, he, he's got that in his locker. And, but you're right, he's, he's clearly is his leadership and he saw any kind of his passion as well. His celebration, he's kind of trying to be quite cool with his, you know, handcuffed his ear and then it's, <laughs> and then he let rip. So, absolutely, his, his importance to Liverpool, I don't think that's, you know, particularly new, but it's, it's growing. It's growing all the time. Big signings arrive, and you think you think Jordan Henderson might eventually get moved aside. He's still always his importance, his kind of drive to that team is 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 very clear. What did you think about what Joyce had to say in terms of Jurgen Klopp bringing in more players, rotating, using the squad? Because of course, many people saying it's not at the same level of a Chelsea or Manchester City, even Manchester United in terms of that title race. But you you need to use them. Yeah, I think there'll be times where it works and times where it 
Well, it doesn't because I think the fact remains that a lot of Liverpool's kind of backups aren't of the same standard. Origi had a really good game, but I think it's been said for for quite some time that he's not someone that you can say was a. There was he was the only backup to the to Liverpool's kind of recognised front three. Obviously, Jota's come in since, and the other players. A lot of them are you're talking about some young lads like Curtis Jones. He's you know he's a player of huge potential, but. It's all quite new for him. Even at the back, you know, to come in. Gomez came in and, and looked assured for a lot of the game. Obviously, had his moments as well. So I think it'll work sometimes. Sometimes it won't. I think that's the truth of the matter. I think other teams are a little bit, have a little bit more of a luxury in terms of the resources available to them. Let's move on to Manchester City then. They opened their Champions League campaign this year with a big win. 6-3 win over RB Leipzig at the Etihad Stadium. Who needs... A recognised number nine, Tom Clark. And who needs any form of defending, really? Let's be honest. I mean, it was <laughs> far, far be it for me to be the grumpy one on the podcast, as usual. It was a great, great game, great fun to watch, great goals. But goodness me, I mean, the defending was absolutely non-existent for both teams. Yeah, no, I mean, City are clearly going to um, be playing like this, even when they have a striker on the pitch in Gabriel Jesus. He might be playing out wide. It's obviously going to be interesting now with Phil Foden back how Pep marries him. Jack Grealish seems to be getting better and better every game. Seems to be thriving on the big occasions, these big nights against the big teams in big games. He scored an excellent goal. The defender just looked like, oh, I'm going to run away. I can't can't possibly try and deal with this. I do want to briefly, briefly mention, and maybe we can talk about it, City's defending. Don't know what Gregor thought. Some of those goals they conceded. I think it was the second one where the striker just kind of drifted into this massive gap on about the six-yard box to head in. And I was like, what is this defending? I thought, thought City last season with the t- you know, 1-0 to Man City. And now we're going to go back to the Kevin Keegan will score more than you method. I mean, it's great fun. It keeps us all on our toes. But yeah, the, the City the city defending would have me a little worried, I think. I think you saw that from, from Guardiola. You saw that clip in the rounds of social media where <laughs> we saw him having a, a kind of berating Grealish and Mares as well. Just this sort of intensity and he's talking about, I think Grealish said afterwards that was about the, the other side of the game, how we've got to, you know, the way we've got to track back and, you know, recover into some sort of shape. And there are, clearly that's something that's going to take some some refining. Mares took a long time to get into City's, you know, pattern that way, you know, the way they recognising that he has to do that other side of the game. And, and by the end of last season, he was outstanding at it. Grealish has clearly got some work to do in that, that front as well, I think. So, yeah, despite all the, you know, the, the, the shimmering play going forward and, you know, the prospect of seeing more of, of Grealish and De Bruyne linking up, it's just mouthwatering stuff. The other thing that I have to say is, looking at how, how much football De Bruyne has missed in his career at Man City, he's missed 68 games in 396 days. And every single time, he just comes back in and it looks like he's never been away. It's remarkable. I don't think I can remember another player who, the amount of football he misses, taking no time whatsoever just to fit right back in and have such an enormous impact on the team. It's, it's astonishing. So, as I say, I think the prospect of those two linking up is, is going to be really exciting for Manchester City this season but there is work to do going the other way wouldn't say there's been a real effect on Kevin De Bruyne's physique either although it's getting Jan Molby-esque I'm just saying Kevin you know <laughs> just saying, Kevin. Sure, sure, sure you're still fit no you know you know it's just not the, the the lung busting runs they aren't quite there at the moment but it'll come back he's one of the best if not the best in the world but he could have an effect so many different ways too 
You know, mm-hmm. that's what he doesn't have to do those long bus, those driving runs. He will, he'll come to do them, but he can sit, sit a little bit and kind of spray the ball around. He's got, you know, so many strings to his bow. I thought one of the interesting things about this game was it had shades of a shock Manchester City Champions League exit for a while until those final <laughs> two goals. You know, one of those where, you know, you expect Man City to show up and do, do the business, which they did in the end. But the way the goals were conceded and that sort of element of shock and surprise, and it was like, oh, is it happening again? I think that small thought is the thing that might cost Manchester City down the stretch as well. The belief that there's a weakness. There's, of course, most big teams in this competition that are going out to win it don't believe they have a weakness. And I actually wonder whether Manchester City know that they do. I know Nathan Ake was playing in the heart of defence. I know it's not necessarily going to be their first choice team throughout the competition, but they can't keep conceding sloppy goals whilst being as great as they are. I think you're going early on the City mind games, Hugh. I remember this from before the uh, <laughs> before the final last season and you, you proved to be right on that one, but we're only one game in. I think it's probably also slightly simply the fact that maybe John Stones wasn't playing. We talked about John Stones recently for England and how brilliant he was against Robert Lewandowski. I think he just is such a brilliant defender. He's come through his tough times and he's massively important to Manchester City. And maybe when you have him back alongside Ruben Diaz, they probably won't concede at least two of those three goals. So I wouldn't sound the alarm bells for the mind games just yet, Hugh. Just yet. I'd also say there's someone in um, Guardiola alluded to after the game and that because they don't have that recognised out-and-out number nine, they have to flood the boxes with players. You know, their attacks are about getting so many players forward into the box and that, that naturally will leave leave holes behind them. So, you know, he said that. He said, we don't have a guy who's able to score 20, 25 goals. Lots of players have to arrive in the box and score 16 goals in the last three games. <laughs> so it's working from that sense, but it is going to leave against better opposition. It's going to leave some some space in behind. That's always been City's, City's weak spot, though. You mentioned John Stones. He hasn't played for Manchester City yet this season, Tom. Do you have any idea why that might be, given how good he was last year? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I wonder whether it's, we talked about Liverpool's rotation, maybe Pep's trying to do something similar, not become over-reliant on certain players, wanting to target lots of different competitions. You want to give the likes of Nathan Ake a chance. He obviously scored scored a great header not quite at the same level defensively as John Stones. Maybe maybe it's something like that wants to give um, Americ Laporte a chance as well in some of the games this season. He's a player I, who I think is absolutely brilliant, bringing the ball out from the back can be incredibly important for City. So maybe it's just something as simple as that and that we'll see Stones, the, the big game player, the Stones-Diaz combination will be for the big games and that maybe the likes of Ake and Laporte and others will get a chance and make sure that they're fresh should the, should an injury happen. Because we saw it when Laporte got injured, didn't we, two seasons ago. That was the Van Dyke of the previous season. That's what cost City in a big way. And maybe Pep's conscious that if I lost Diaz, if I lost Stones, then I'd be in serious trouble. I've got to make sure Ake and Laporte are ready to step in. I wanted to talk about Jack Grealish. I think since the international break, there's been a clear change. Just because, remember we spoke about how, especially for England, picks up the ball, teasing the Poland defenders, but but basically dribbling back towards his own halfway line, relying on that light right foot from the left-hand side so often. He seems, Gregor, to have that intent now to run straight at the opposition defence and he scored a brilliant goal. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. We did speak about that. It just felt like something that would not could not last in his game with 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 under Guardiola. And there's also something about 
those combinations around the penalty area are what, what City are best at, really. Players picking the ball up in those little inside channels, you know, overlaps, overloads, and Grealish cutting inside and looking to play one-twos, things like that. So, yeah, I think the longer we see him in a City shirt, we look, the longer Guardiola has to work with Grealish, the the more refined that kind of that part of Grealish's game and those relationships he has with the players around him will will become. Because you know, also you, Bernardo Silva's emergence, this you know re-emergence, I should say. We thought you know there's a good chance he was going to leave the club. It's just you look at that front six. Those, those six players playing last night that started and you know you've still got Foden and Sterling and Gundogan and Jesus to come off the bench but those six that started rotate you know obviously Torres is going to be the man who stays centrally but the rest of them the rotation's just there's so much movement and, and they can all play anywhere really in that, that area Rodri Torres central Grealish and Silva on the left De Bruyne and Mares on the right there is so much kind of fluidity to that and despite what Guardiola is saying about not having that out striker the benefit is City can flood players into the box and they've got players, you know, with a technique to kind of play those intricate that intricate football in the box and Grealish definitely falls into that category. Well, the good news for John Stones anyway um, is given Nathan Ake's performance, he'll probably be back in the team very, very soon. Shout out to Christopher and Kunku. Champions League hat-trick wasn't the only one this week. But imagine not even scoring, you know, what? Not even getting within two goals of the opposition having scored a hat-trick. Tough night for RB Leipzig, but a good one in the end for Manchester City. Uh, that is Wednesday night's football in the Champions League all wrapped up. We'll talk Tuesday nights next. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed as well. For more of our episodes, you won't miss a single one. Stay with us up next, Manchester United and Chelsea. I'm not going to start the conversation on Manchester United by going directly at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Let's talk about the players in their 2-1 defeat against young boys in Bern this week in the Champions League. Aaron Wambasaka given a red card, a straight red card after, what, half an hour or so. And all the conjecture, all the conversation this week about the reaction of the manager. We'll come to that in a moment because there were lots of fans on social media when I mentioned the manager hadn't done as well. He said, hold on a minute. This one is squarely on the players. They never had the intensity, never had the desire, made loads of sloppy errors. And it doesn't matter what the manager does. This is a Champions League and that's going to cost you games. So, Gregor, let's start with Manchester United's players on the evening. There was a start for Donny van der Beek in the side. Cristiano Ronaldo was up front. Jaden Sancho was in the team as well. Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba, so much talent. And they looked very comfortable until that red card. Obviously, the, the conversation since the game has been about how Solskjaer has lost seven of his 11 Champions League games. Uh, you know, this is there's a pattern emerging. But Paul Hurst got a good, really good piece today of kind of going through those games and sort of looking for trends and what's why that is happening and a big part of it is individual errors <laughs> there's been a lot you know Fred sent off against PSG last season well this is not Wan-Bissaka's first kind of chastening night in the Champions League uh, in Europe sorry you know individual errors are a big part of it it's often the next part is how Solskjaer reacts to it that's that's where the kind of conversation comes but if you're going talking about the players yes I mean there's an argument that Pogba should have come off before Van de Beek Sancho coming off He's a big outlet in terms of his pace and going forward. So the way Solskjaer has reacted is, you know, a valid point of discussion. But you have to give him some kind of mitigation, which is that the players there's been ill discipline a lot of the time, or individual errors like Jesse Lingard's uh, kind of 
unfathomable pass back. I would urge anyone to go and to read this piece in, in the Times today. It's, it's got a really good graphic about every single lineup and system change and things like that. And the other thing that this made me think is if you're if you're not really if you don't really have a a starting point, a predefined style of play, <laughs> then you're more likely to try and look for solutions like this, to try and change formation, to match up the opposition, do things like that. It, you know, people can say as much as they want Manchester United are, you know, so under Solskjaer, counter-attacking team. You can't be a counter-attacking team against Bern. You can't, you can't do that against good, te- you know, good teams in in Europe. There is that's another part of the conversation that they don't really have. In the same way, you could talk about Liverpool and Chelsea and and City having a you know, you know their shape. You know the way they're going to play. If they lose a man, you know they might make a small tweak, but they're not going to rip it up wholesale and change the formation and go three at the back. And that's another part of it. I think. I think when you look at how many changes and how many kind of he's looking for, looking for answers to questions in Europe, and he's not really found them a lot of the time. I think when you reflect broadly over Solskjaer's time at United in the Champions League, they're very much a team of extremes, aren't they? They win these games that you don't expect them to win. They beat the big teams. They have amazing nights in Paris and all this kind of stuff. Then they lose to Istanbul. They lose to Leipzig last season and they concede some absolutely stinking goals. And Greg is alluding to there some of the changes that he makes. Again, it's quite extreme, isn't it? You change to change formation mid-game. You maybe make a lot of substitutions. It's not very calm. It's not... A, and it was, you know, still want, not, and you don't want to do the whole Sir Alex Ferguson comparison, but he used to say 10 points, get through the group, then then get into the business end of the competition. And it just always seems quite fraught with Manchester United, even in the group stages. You know, they've, they've lost this game. They might then get a massive win at home and Ronaldo will score a hat-trick and it'll be brilliant. They're back. And then they'll draw the next game that they really should have won. It, it's, Solskjaer's got to work out how in these big tournaments in the Champions League, how to settle it down, 2-0 win. Get the job done. The reaction, Gregor, you know, for me, Jaden Sancho coming off straight away when Wambasaka had got given a red card. I thought that was strange. Then at halftime, Donny van der Beek gets taken off. I thought that was really strange as well. Moving to a back five, bringing on Rafa Varane and essentially inviting pressure. Loads of people saying, imagine it was Chelsea and they had a player sent off. Imagine it was Manchester City and they'd had a player sent off. Young boys probably would have barely been able to touch the ball after that point. Yes, it would have been harder, of course, to have 10 men, but the outlook would have been keep the ball. You've got a 1-0 win. You're away from home. You've got a 1-0 lead, excuse me. You're away from home. Just keep it possession-based. No, doesn't guarantee that you're going to win the game and that the opposition aren't going to come into it. But certainly it's safer than playing 5-3-1. I mean, what was your reaction to that? Because I just... It was insane. I mean, it was just, and the other thing was, even though it was basically a flat back five, for me, when you've got five substitutions, you've had this plan, it clearly hasn't worked. The opposition are still getting crosses in, even though you've got wing backs who are all the way back. So they're basically full backs, three central defenders, crosses were still coming in, balls were still being played through you. You completely seeded the central midfield area so young boys can just take control of the game. You've still got players there that you can bring off the bench and substitutions to use to change it back if you wanted to. And the depth of Manchester United squad, they should have been able to. So I I found not just the initial reaction, but the then lack of a further reaction when things were going wrong to be almost even worse than the first one, if you get me. (laughs) Do you get me? (laughs) (laughs) I do, yeah. But I think, again, I think that comes back to just, you said it, 
City would try and dominate the ball. That's their kind of that's the way they play. Liverpool, you know that you know that they're, they're gonna they're gonna try and press high. Obviously, if you if you lose a man, then you have to you have to change that slightly. I just don't think you, you still look at Man United and think what was their starting position. And then you're, when you change it, you're asking players to play in a way that they they're not really accustomed to. Varane coming into a back three, it's all as as Tom said, it does all look a little bit kind of chaotic. But I have to say it again. Without the kind of the ill discipline and the individual errors, Solskjaer's job and life would have been much easier in Europe so far in his Manchester United career. Could, you know, could you, you could say is that does Solskjaer deserve any blame for that? I don't know. I think when you look at a stupid tackle like Wambasaka's, or you know, you could have said in it was in her report that when Fred was sent off, I think he got booked in the first half and he was running around like a headless chicken against PSG, and everyone was saying take him off, take him off. So that that's an occasion where you think. Okay, it's easy with hindsight, but there's there was an opportunity for him to make a change. Sometimes when it's like a a, a straight a straight red like Wan Bissaka, there's nothing you can do about it. In your experience of playing, were you coached on the training ground with with ten men? Because let's be honest, in the EFL, I mean that's a, an eventuality every weekend. <laughs> isn't it? I mean, surely you've got to be prepared that's for that. Slanderous. <laughs> you did, but more more when you were actually. It wasn't certainly my experience. It wasn't just for an eventuality when you went down to 10 men it was like a defense a defending exercise you're obviously a man down so you're gonna to have to defend more that's more the context that i've done it in my career i think you know i've certainly i've heard of some managers doing it trying to be prepared for every as you say every eventuality but maybe none of the managers i played for had that much foresight <laughs> it's often said though isn't it that it's tougher to play against 10 men because you know, it's full defence mode. Every player on the pitch, basically behind the ball. And it's funny because watching Manchester United, I mean, it was certainly easier to play against them. Maybe it was the tactical change. Maybe, I don't know, they just weren't up for it. I don't know. It was a surprising performance in, in many ways. Um, one thing I have to say to both of you, please back me up on this, is that in the Champions League, unless you're in Siberia, if you're up in Russia and it's ice cold, or you're in Scandinavia, that's one thing. Burn, which I, I've, I've been told it rains a lot there, so that's the need for a 4G pitch. But my word, it's a, it's a, it's a leveller. I'll call it that. You know, I, I can't, I can't stand them, Tom. I, I'm probably with you. Yeah, I was, I was very tempted as you were saying that just to disagree with you to wind you up, but you seem so impassioned that I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for a nice harmonious moment on the podcast. No, it did seem a little bit strange, and it must be difficult. I mean, again, I don't know whether Gregor has an experience because there are not many uh, 4G pitches in the EFL, but um, you're not allowed them. Yeah, I know. Could definitely do with them. The amount of waterlogged pitches you get, so maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's the argument for them. But no, it did seem a little bit strange to me. Yeah, you watch the Scottish Premiership as well, and now there's some there's some in the in that league, and it does change the the whole kind of perspective of the game. I have to say, I hated them, and a lot of players when they're getting to your thirties and you've got a few more aches and pains. My God, does that surface make make you feel more more during and after the game? So, uh, yeah, no, that's a whole that's a whole big thing in the football league as well. Obviously, Sutton United got promoted to the football league in the summer, and they had to rip up their that official pitch, which brought them lots of revenue, and uh, no, there's an argument in the lower leagues you, you should be able to, but I wholeheartedly agree with you. In the Champions League, no chance. Yeah, just you. I don't know. Use the national stadium if you need to. I don't know. It just, yeah, for me, it just didn't seem right. I can understand it when it's absolutely freezing and you've got no chance, but um, but yeah. Listen, let's move on anyway to to Chelsea and a better pitch at Stamford Bridge this week. Romelu Lukaku once again 
on the score sheet, a difference maker. They beat Zenit St. Petersburg by a goal to nil. His arrival at Chelsea is just about as good and about as seamless, I think, as I've seen a transfer in recent times. Do you agree, Tom? Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent word for it. Seamless, isn't it? It's just, it's like he's been there. It's like he'd had a whole season training with them and he knows all the players. It's a perfect move at the perfect time of his career. And it looks pretty ominous for other teams. I mean, I'm actually surprised by how good he looks. It's the kind of confidence and swagger about him as well. He just seems like a man ready to really show, I am one of the best strikers in Europe. I'm up there with the Lewandowski's of the game. I'm not this kind. I remember I used to talk to Tony Cascarino quite a lot about him. And he, Tony always thought he, he described him as kind of an 8 out of 10 player. And that he'll, he will always score goals and he always rated him and always thought he was a good top, top player, but he's in that very good bracket. And I actually spoke to Tony recently. He's like, no, he's gone. He's gone to the next level now. He's gone to the exceptional nine, 10 out of 10 type player. And I think it is that kind of confidence and that swagger and that certainty with which he seems to he's going to score goals. And then, as you say, you have him leading the line and then you have an absolute you could, I mean, the the embarrassment of riches that Chelsea have got to play behind Lukaku is absolutely obscene. Alison Rudd wrote a piece this week. Alison's piece yeah. was brilliant, wasn't it? Just talking about how they could have beaten him with the, the the second string. And it's true. But then you're like, well, what is that? Other than Lukaku and maybe, um, obviously, maybe Kante and Jorginho in midfield. You're like, what is the what is the second string? What is the first first team? It's, it's genuinely a bit frightening, I think, for the opposition. The main thing about... Lukaku's uh, return and how successful it's been is that it isn't that much of a surprise personally and that kind of says how much that says a lot about his stature now and the kind of fact that he I think he already made that step up to be in in that kind of plane the same alongside Lewandowski and whatnot you know people might talk down Serie A but he played for a a team that won won Serie A and his goal record we've spoken about it before it's just it's just remarkable so yeah, the difference he will make to Chelsea, because, you know, when we look at so many, when Tuchel, Tuchel came in, the clean sheets rolled on. There were a lot of narrow victories and a lot of kind of, you know, the, the shot conversion rate wasn't great. And now <laughs> it's just been transformed and that, you know, that's going to have a huge effect on Chelsea this season. The bench was was pretty special. Um, some very good players there, but um, Kai Havertz was on the bench, Chilwell was on the bench, hudson Doy. Barkley, Sao Niguez, uh, Loftus-Cheek, Werner, Thiago Silva, Kepa. I mean, it's a strong bench, let's be perfectly honest, <laughs> and others as well. Reading that John Allison's piece, it was like this whole kind of dreamy <laughs> dreamy piece about the other 11. And I'd urge anyone to go and read it because it was very funny. And true, I think that, that 11 would also have won. <laughs> Again, it's just ominous, like you say, in terms of what Chelsea could do this season. The interesting thing is... They do rotate a lot. I mean, we spoke about it with other clubs as well. I say they rotate a lot. What I mean is they have a few key areas, you know, especially those backing up the centre forward. They can switch the likes of Ziyech, um, Pulisic, Hudson-Odoi plays his role. You know, there are quite a few players, Kai Havertz in that team, Timo Werner, who can do a job assisting Lukaku. But you imagine the pillar in every game is going to be Lukaku, you know, unless it's a game that you think he essentially has to be rested for. If he gets injured, of course, that would be a, a huge concern. But I think with him in the side, like it, it, it's just transformed. I was interested to see lots of people say that Chelsea are their favourites for the Champions League this year. 
thought that was sort of strange. You know, the idea that they could win back-to-back Champions League last year was a surprise. This year definitely wouldn't be. They are stronger. I just think back-to-backs are always just, they're very, very tough to do. Do you think they can win it, Tom? It's funny you say that because actually during this conversation, I was thinking, I actually think they're my favourites for the Champions League. And then you went and said you found it strange. But no, I, I think they are. I just think Tuchel's tactical abilities, tactical nows in big games that we've already seen, particularly against Manchester City and Atletico last season, getting results, that that embarrassment of riches, as we've said already, and now adding Lukaku to it. As you say, the only concern is Lukaku if he gets injured, but if he doesn't, I think they are favourites. I think if you look at the other English teams we've talked about so far, they're definitely the leading pack of the English teams in this kind of competition from what we know about what the ingredients you have to have in your squad and in your setup to win. And then you look around Europe and you think, I'd I'd fancy them against any of the big, big teams in the knockout rounds. Big game at the weekend against Tottenham Hotspur, just quickly to reflect on. Uh, I know, Gregor, you're there watching Spurs in the Conference League, Europa Conference League. Um, Do you think they're going to stop Chelsea? Spurs are quite kind of uh, thin on the ground at the moment. Son, Son is injured, Eric Dyer's injured, and there, there is some hope that they'll they'll return for for Sunday. Um, and then also there's the, the three South Americans who are isolating and won't return. They're isolating in Croatia after international duty, and they won't return until Saturday, the day before. And it's expected that one of one, at least one of Davis and Sanchez or Christian Romero are going to have to go straight into the team because tomorrow night um, it's likely to be sorry. Tonight, I should probably know that. I've gone to the game. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? Tonight, the, it's expected to be Joe Roden and, and uh, Jaffa Tanganga, and Tanganga is obviously suspended after uh, his red card at Crystal Palace. So it's going to be tough. And it was really, it was a really, really poor performance by Spurs, obviously against against Crystal Palace at the weekend. And you know, we tried to extract anything from Nuno at the, <laughs> the press conference uh, yesterday. He's just saying that he knows. It's hard work in the training ground. He knows no other recipe for success than hard work. And, you know, they realised that they fell below their expected standards. Just no creativity. I think they had two shots, which was the worst since 2005. Obviously, I think I also think tonight is quite important for them. I think, you know, if they, if they, if they lose tonight, then the, the mood is going to darken even more before, before the visit of Chelsea on Sunday. Well, it was a pretty entertaining week in the Champions League, wasn't it? What else caught your eye, Tom? Well, typically me being me, you've said entertaining week. I'm obviously going to pick the 1-0 win out of the list of uh, the results. <laughs> Real Madrid, 1-0, Rodrigo, 89th minute win away at Inter Milan. I just found it quite kind of comforting in an you know, ever strange world that in the Champions League, even Real Madrid with a weakened squad, questions about what, what they are as a club these days, still getting that win getting off and running every chance they'll still make the knockout rounds they'll still be there in the competition that matters to them most I just really enjoyed that 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 bit of reliable reliable win for them mm, I think they'll be awful in the Champions League this season well maybe they will <laughs> but, they're, but they've given themselves a chance with a with a 1-0 win away from home yeah 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 good start for Real Madrid on their uh, campaign for another Champions League title okay, I'll back you up on that Tom Gregor what did you see I quite enjoyed watching PSG uh, against Bruges in, in my Irish bar in, in Rennes, which is the only, only football I could find on the TV live at the time. Um, obviously, MNM, Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, it didn't go that well, partly because Mbappe came off after about 50 minutes with a knock. But Mbappe was probably the liveliest of them all. And, you know, that chop he does, that chop at pace, I don't, I'm not sure anyone ever lives with that. You know, he kind of comes inside from the left 
on his right foot looks like he's going to whip an across or go that way and then chops down the line and no one can live with him and then he set up Herrera's goal brilliantly but Bruges were excellent Bruges were absolutely outstanding they, Kayla Navas had far more saves than safe to make than, than uh, Simon Mignolet in the in the Bruges goal and they were well deserving of their, of their draw it was a wasn't a great night for Messi. I have to also give a wee shout out to Scotland defender Jack Henry here. Who, um, <laughs> I, I kind of, I don't know, it went, went past me that um, that he moved there in, in the summer. He's been, he's former Celtic defender. He was on loan to, to Oostende last season. And then they had a, a, a fee in that deal to buy him for 1.75 million, which they did. And then they sold him on immediately to Bruges for 6 million. So Celtic have been made to look like mugs a little bit from this, and he was brilliant. He, you know, coming up against three of the best players in the world, this uh, this Scottish centre half, I'm, I'm very pleased to say, performed brilliantly. Seeing as I did pick out a one nil win, and Greg has just mentioned maybe British teams being made to look a little bit silly. Sebastian Haller scoring four for Ajax. It's a classic, classic West Ham transfer. Comes in, does <laughs> absolutely nothing, leaves. And suddenly looks like a world beater. So yeah, I, I did want I did spot that as well. Five one win for them at Sporting. Good start for them. The team with, as you said, Hugh on social media this week, the team with the best kits in all of Europe, easily. So I hope, I hope they progress. Love the home kit. Oh, unbelievable. We've got to talk about Jude Bellingham briefly too, haven't we? I mean, what this guy is doing. <laughs> Eighteen is just ridiculous. The goal and assist. Yeah, yeah. He just looks at home in the Champions League it's just frightening the celebration was great wasn't it kind of running away he just looked like I, I am the man imagine feeling that good at 18 <laughs> the amount of paranoia and you know anxiety that I was racked with as an 18 year old and you're just there banging a goal in the Champions League run away in front of the crowd going look at me I am the absolute dog's bollocks great to see God what a career he's got in front of him a couple of quirks that I enjoy from the Champions League this week the severe Red Bull Salzburg game, uh, a tale of four penalties. Salzburg missing two on the night, but they were all awarded in the half, in the first half, excuse me. So it was a crazy first half with four penalties and a red card in the second. Sevilla should be lucky to get away with a point in that one as well. And there are another, I mean, there are some really good games in the Champions League this week, including the performance from Bayern Munich away at Barcelona. I mean, again, talking of ominous performances, so easy for Bayern Munich. I mean, they absolutely battered Barcelona. And I actually was watching that game and it was just like, Barcelona, a shadow of themselves, actually. You know, people were talking about Ronald Koeman's future immediately after that game. You just look at the team, you're like, this is nowhere near the quality. You know, it's almost, what can the manager do? The defence was all over the place. Another shout for another young kid doing crazy things is Jamal Musiala, Bellingham's close mate. I mean, he's another one who just looks like he knows he belongs on that stage at such a young age. Just a shame that England missed out on him. Yeah, I was about to say, we talk about all the English <laughs> clubs making mistakes. We can now talk about the FA as well. You know, all these people making mistakes left, right and centre. Mustiala, of course, was in the under-21s, every England age group, in fact. And when he got called up to the seniors for Germany, he took that, that opportunity and he's going to be a great player for years to come as well. That's the Champions League all rounded off. I think it's been a very special week. We've got a big weekend ahead as well to look forward to. Tom Clark, I know you're busy and you have to dash, but thank you for being with us on the game podcast. Gregor and I are going to stay. We're talking Newcastle United next. If you think there's no hope, I think that's just wrong. Stay with us on the game. 
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, the first game of the next weekend, the upcoming weekend in the Premier League sees Newcastle United take on Leeds. It's a pretty important fixture given the start to the season Newcastle have had. It's already heaped pressure on their manager, Steve Bruce. But I found it really interesting of late, the conversation around Newcastle United. You know, it seems fans are very dejected right now. That's a familiar story. Maybe it's a bit of a hangover from, you know, that sliding doors moment with a prospective takeover. But maybe the hyperbole around it's just a little bit too much. You know, Alan Shearer on Match of the Day saying there's no hope with Newcastle at the moment. I thought that was just, you know, slightly unrealistic. They're in a decent position compared to most clubs in football outside of the Premier League. 10th, 13th, 13th and 12th in the last four seasons in the Premier League. Mid-table obscurity is not where they want to be. I get it. But couldn't it be far worse? Let's speak to our Northern football correspondent, Martin Hardy, who joins us on the Game Podcast. He's going to tell me I'm wrong immediately. Martin, how would you describe the feelings around Newcastle United right now? <laughs> that's, a, that's such a difficult question. I've, I've done three books on Newcastle United and in 300,000 words, I still couldn't answer your question uh, as to where they are, what's gone wrong and what happens next. The two managers, Rafa Benitez and Steve Bruce, would probably argue that the finishes you've just said were the worst things retrospectively they could have done because that gives the impression at boardroom level and certainly with Mike Ashley that the club is fine and that the personnel is is okay. The two managers in question would say they have been able to overachieve for whatever reason, whether they got some momentum, whether they were being clever, whether a centre forward like Callum Wilson did very well last season. Where the club is now is particularly dejected now, on September the 14th, Mike Ashley said, I have the interests of Newcastle United at heart. I have listened to you. You want me out. That is what I'm now trying to do, but it won't happen overnight. Mike Ashley said that on September the 14th in 2008. He said that 13 years ago that he was trying to get out. A Newcastle fan responded to me on, about that and said, I was 19 when he said that, and I'm now 32. Now, what you're, what you're trying to encapsulate is a lot of the drip, drip, drip of ambition and drive, which Steve Bruce is trying to manage. And it's, it, it is an incredibly difficult situation that he finds himself in. So this morning we've just finished, sorry, today we've just finished the press conference where he has said, do you not think I want us to be higher at the table? Do you not think I want us to be signing better players? Which is a little bit dangerous to say. But 
it, it, that kind of incorporates this feeling that the club is not where most people would like it to be. Unfortunately, the owner is far more um, comfortable with the position of where they find themselves, which is floating around, they hope, between 12th and 16th, 17th. A couple of years ago, after many conversations, it was the ambition is to go top 10, um, but it will take time after promotion. But you are now talking about season five. They may argue that they've spent money in terms of Joe Linton comes in for 40 million, which is a really poor bit of business. But then they would say 20 million for Miguel, Miguel Almiron, 17 million for Alan St. Maximin, 25 million for Joe Willick. When you look through the team, there has been money spent on it, but it's a bit ad hoc. It's always a little bit late and you're never quite sure what the recruitment plan is. So it leaves you with this really unhappy fan base that are very well aware that this season is going to be about struggle. But that to move that forward to Friday night, Newcastle it, uh, must win. It's not far off. Steve Bruce saying today he's not going to walk away. He, he backs his experience to get Newcastle through this. Do you think the pressure on him, the criticism of him, is fair or unfair? <laughs> is that question fair? It's a, it's a difficult one. He knew what he was walking into. With Newcastle, you often ask, and this is why I made reference to 13 years since Mike actually first tried to sell the club. You're always trying to figure out what the long-term plan is, and that's the difficulty. Has there been investment? Has there been significant investment at the training ground? Has there been significant investment in the academy? So whoever comes in and picks up the reins is picking up a difficult situation, but he knew what he was coming into. Could they have done more this season? In a strange way, this season, they've played with a bit more flair, they played quite well against uh, West Ham. They very nearly beat Southampton, although they didn't play that well. For periods against Manchester United, they actually did very well. And I've seen Newcastle teams go there and play a lot worse. But at the end, ultimately, you're coming out with one point and you're feeling friction between Steve Bruce and the board for the first time and you're feeling friction between Steve Bruce and the fans, which has always been there. <sighs> could, he, could he be doing more with these group of players, perhaps in the last season or two? But at the minute, his argument would be defensively, we were too weak. And he wanted more strength in the middle of midfield. So he wanted um, Wanzibi or Chowdhury to come in to, to shore up his team. But the club said, we're not, not doing any more business. From his perspective, he's trying to move the players on in terms of who he signs. Could he develop the, the team tactically and in terms of systems a bit more differently? A la Graham Potter, perhaps, yes. Martin, you're talking about recruitment there. I seem to remember as well, Bruce saying about the one player they did bring in, Joe Willock that the club kind of broke the transfer policy to get that one over the line. So it seems from an outsider point of view and from that from that statement that really he doesn't have any say over who's coming in or not. The first summer he arrived, he kind of met Joe Willock and Alan St. Maximin for 60 million quid. It was like, hiya, nice to meet you. I don't think he'd ever watched them play before. He got a, a fair amount of control in the summer where he signed Callum Wilson and Jamal Lewis and Ryan Fraser um, and Jeff Hendrick. This summer, and the club's argument, which they released a statement, which again seemed uh, something you didn't have to do, which felt very much, although the club argued against it, felt very much a pop against Steve Bruce complaining. At the start, their business model pretty much runs on, we think if we're a Premier League club, we can create between 30 and 50 million pounds per season, which will be as profit, which will be spent on players. In the world of COVID, that 30 to 50 million pounds disappeared. Therefore, we have no money to spend on players. Now, obviously, Willock scored eight goals in 11 games then the last season, and Bruce was very key to sign him, and they had hoped to be able to do a loan deal with Arsenal, and Arsenal said no. At that point, the club will argue, we changed our plan 
and our business model to to go and buy the player based on installments, which Ashley doesn't like doing. He likes to pay for the player up front. They then go back to Steve Bruce and say, we found you 25, 20 to 25 million pounds and you want more. And Bruce's argument is, I'm trying to make the team better. Now, at some point you wonder, is there a bit of, can we do a bit of give and take here? It was argued that the, the salary and the loan fee for Chowdhury was too high. Let's say theoretically, uh, theoretically it's two and a half million for a loan fee and you then pay the player salary for, for a season. Does that five, four to five million pound represent good value if it moves the team three or four places up the division and, and changes the mood around the city? Perhaps it is. Bruce's frustration at that point is that the club have gone back to what they were before they bought Willick, but the club argues that we weren't supposed to buy Willick. So it ends up a complicated situation and you go back to 2008, and sorry for referring to that all the time, and that was in the in the aftermath of the argument between Kevin Keegan and Mike Ashley where Kevin Keegan said, I've never heard of Cisco. And he was told to go and watch the player on YouTube and the player signed and the player was awful. He banged his head against the wall with the club and he said, you haven't learned, you haven't learned yet that you need a a cohesive recruitment policy where you are all working together. And at the minute, it doesn't feel like they are, which is why historically when the club does this, they get relegated under Mike Ashley. And it happened when they got rid of Keegan and Keegan left and successfully sued the club. And it also happened the season they were relegated under Steve McLaren or when Steve McLaren was there in the start, where Steve McLaren's first week off, obviously meets four players who turn out to be very good, but are they the ones he wants? It's why now lives to so go Chancellor and Bemba and um, Mirovic, but he can't make them into a team. See, you're still you're still thinking at some point they have to be run more like a football team, and that's why they end up in these situations. That's why the fans end up frustrated, and now Steve Bruce is frustrated. And that's why you they have no hope. Well, this is <laughs> this is going to be my next question. You know what 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 Martin do you think is the outlook for Newcastle from this point in time? Is it is it really no hope? You know, obscurity probably yes relegation battle probably no hope you know I'm just saying there are a lot of football clubs facing worse go right quantify facing worse well I don't think Newcastle are going to go out of business right now (laughs) and I also think I also think there are going to be three worse teams in the Premier League than them so they're going to stay in the top flight that brings in money and I think eventually the club will be sold if they stay in the Premier League because they have an owner who it seems wants to sell and hopefully (laughs) given the fan base given the size of the club given what's already there you know for me I think Newcastle is a great investment surely someone's going to come in soon and and Mike Ashley will go I like your ambition that the club can be (laughs) sold when when for 13 years it's been on the market and they still haven't found a buyer Um, and the house has fallen to bits and it's like come in come in have a look it's still it's still what it was 13 years ago and it's not it's falling behind the training ground facilities and the academy facilities aren't good enough anymore. The ground needs a bit of TLC, which the fans are now complaining about. The people who live in the house are really annoyed. The, the one thing you would say, is that the asking price is over 300 million. At some point, Mike Ashley, if he really, I'm assured he desperately wants out, if he really wants to sell, and I'm, you know, I would imagine he knows a thing or two about finding the right, right price to sell stuff, he has to drop the price in terms of finding a willing buyer. You have to forget about the the, the, the attempt to take over a couple of years ago as far as I'm concerned people ask me to that's just about gone so you have to look forward and find something different uh, at the minute they are they are treading water and the supporters arms are getting very tired of doing that 
Well, you make a strong and compelling point, Martin Hardy. So, um, <laughs> so I will de- I will defer to you on this one. But I thought it was interesting to talk about Newcastle United once hearing that there was indeed no hope. And the sad news for Newcastle fans listening is apparently that is the case. So, you know. no, no, there isn't. In 1982, Newcastle were tenth in Division Two or was Division Two. So that was really no hope. The ground was a dump, and from nowhere they got Kevin Keegan, and the whole the, the whole future of the history changed. So the, a football club can turn very quickly and a, and a football club with a great fan base and great potential can turn very quickly. So you never turn your back on that. There have been moments when Callum Wilson, Joe Willock and Alan St. Maximum have looked exciting. So it's, somebody, somebody mentioned the other day about Manchester United and about how quickly it goes from boom to bust at the minute. So one minute, everything's going to be great because they signed Ronaldo and they could win the title and they're doing well. And the next thing they get me in the Champions League off young boys and was like, this is a disgrace and Solskjaer has to go. Reading Manchester United becomes more difficult because they haven't won the title for so long. The same happens with England, whereby it's, they are the greatest team in the world or, or they are the, the, the worst. And at Newcastle, there is a similarity. And part of that is because the success has been so long ago that people don't quite know how to react. So what you are still sitting on is a club that is still ready to go. It's just people are becoming very fed up. Now, Newcastle might go and beat Leeds 3-1 tomorrow night in a thriller and St. James's part is alive with people behind the team. Alternatively, they might lose 2-0 and it might be a really vitriolic atmosphere given that it's Friday night at 8 8 o'clock and some people will have spent an hour or two in the pub during the afternoon. It's just very, very difficult to predict. It feels very flat at the minute and the question was put to Steve this morning. You were mentioning, he said, I'm, you know, effectively I'm keeping the club ticking along and he was asked, is that a hard sell? And he said, yes, there is frustration. I agree with you. He doesn't want that. But he, and he said, you know, 20 years ago, Newcastle were at the top of the table, but unfortunately that's not possible at this moment, is it? And that's when he then starts to talk about his frustration. So you, when a football club is filled with that much frustration, it can become very, very difficult. But things can turn very quickly in Newcastle, which historically has proven to be the case. And hopefully they do. Martin Hardy, thank you for joining us <laughs> on the Game Absolute Podcast. Pleasure. Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. Thank you all for listening as well. Remember, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Monday. you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.